uh, the, the shortest book of the Bible that we've gone through. Uh, that was a joke, by the way, if you didn't catch that. Uh, it is by far the longest book that we have gone through. In fact, maybe the, perhaps the longest book that Lighthouse has, has ever gone through. Um, clocking in at 42 chapters if you just manage to look through uh, that journaling Bible. Um, I might just kill the youth ministry if I, um, if I preach through all 42 chapters of Job, which is why we're only doing 41 chapters of Job. So you guys can relax. Uh, just kidding. Uh, we will actually only spend 14 messages or so in the book of Job, and our series will conclude at the start of February. So there is a terminus, there is an end uh, to our series. Um, and so we, we'll, we'll finish at the start of February next year, uh, factoring in all the events and breaks that we have in between now and February. And so you might wonder, why are we going through the book of Job? Um, well, uh, rather, uh, why am I doing this to you? <laughs> and over the course of tonight's message, um, I, I hope you'll see soon enough why we're studying Job together. Um, over the course of tonight's message, I hope it'll be clear to you why studying Job could be formative for you um, as a high schooler, but also as a Christian. Uh, some of you might even be desperate for a book like Job without even realizing it because after talking with some of you and after all that we have collectively endured in the past year and a half, you've, you've tasted suffering like Job. By the way, Job in a nutshell is about Job's sufferings. Uh, so I think you might find some commonality in the book of Job. For others of you, you might find, uh, you might not have experienced the same things as Job has, but maybe you know other people in your life who have suffered similar to Job. And I think you might find some help on how to walk with those in pain and suffering in the book of Job. Or maybe uh, you are just curious generally about the, the problem of evil and the existence of sin and pain and suffering in our world. And you might be able to get some clues and answers in the book of Job. But over the course of tonight's message, I hope it'll become clear to you why we need the book of Job. But without telling, or w- rather without spoiling the main reason, I'd rather just show you instead of telling you. So turn with me to the first chapter of Job. It should be actually really easy because I, I literally gave you um, that book. It's the first page, I think, just the first five verses. Um, and believe it or not, uh, I will be going long. So you have been warmed. Just five verses. Uh, we're not going to read all of Job. That would take us literally two hours. So we're not going to do that. Um, but uh, once you turn there, I'm going to get us going with the reading of God's word. And I'll pray for us after that. But this is what uh, the author of Job, we don't know who the author is, but the author of Job writes this in chapter one, verse one. He says this, there was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, but Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a fast in the house of each, each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help uh, even tonight that as we look at these five brief verses and as we look a little bit more closely at the character of this individual named Job, we pray that you would help us to glean much from this person who lived so far ago or who lived so long ago. And we do pray that as we glean that you'd help us to be 
uh, more than anything else, people who imitate Job, as we will see soon enough. So Father, thank you. We pray that you would make this time profitable for all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. True or false? Those who do righteousness receive blessing, while those who sin receive suffering. True or false? What do you think? You can write down your answer in your notes, or you can just think of it in your head. Now, who answered true? You can raise your hands. This is interactive. Who answered true? Oh, come on. Really? Okay, who answered false? Okay, more of us. Okay, we're more, we're more realistic. Okay, good. Well, those of you who were too afraid to say true in your head, you're correct. Okay, so you can wipe the sweat off your brow. But those who also said false are also correct. And you might be wondering, how can that be true? Um, how can true and false be at the same time be true? Um, well, for those of you who answer true, you generally know that that's generally how the world tends to work and operate. If you do good, generally good things will probably happen. Uh, if you do bad, generally bad things will happen to you. It's the biblical principle of reaping and sowing. If, if you believe in that principle in Galatians chapter 6, then you believe in this idea of um, people receiving good for what they've done and receiving bad for also what they've done. And for those of you who answered false, then you also know firsthand the difficulties of living in a fallen world. For those of you who answered false, you know it's not that suffering itself that troubles you. It's the undeserved suffering. Almost all of us have experienced discipline and consequences from our parents because of our disobedience. I mean, that's expected and anticipated. If there's any justice that exists at all in this world, then it makes sense that discipline is the consequence of wrongdoing. But that's not what surprises us, I think. What surprises us as we get older is that we come to find that there is no real relationship between the amount of wrong that we commit and the amount of pain that we experience. The amount of pain that we experience is not commensurate to the amount of wrong that we commit. In fact, we find that the opposite is actually sometimes most likely true in our lives. We do right and we get knocked down. Others cheat and get rewarded while we act in integrity and we somehow do worse. We act justly, but it goes unnoticed. We try hard and yet others do better. You know, I, had a, I had a friend in high school who was just way smarter than me, didn't have to study for any, anything and got straight A's. Well, I did my best, worked my tail off and, and at, at best got C pluses. And uh, you know, I, think there, for, I think for many of you, that's a very familiar story. There's, there's countless stories like this. Non-Christians who live and sleep together, who don't even want to have children, have children, while faithful Christians try and try, yet never having children at all. I have a friend who is the, um, the daughter of her father's second marriage. She went to church and trusted in Jesus and yet experienced abuse in her very own youth group. It was not here, thank God. But she was left traumatized and, and scarred. She uh, has had a, a string of failed relationships in her adult life. And at the start of the pandemic, her, her father passed away from COVID. While her mother suffers, even now, from manic depression, her mom, in fact, can't even be left alone. So every time my friend sees her friends, her mom is always in the car waiting for her after she's waiting for her to be finished. And so now she lives with her mom in the house that belonged to her dad. And the roof of her, of her dad's house was in need of repair. But the contractor decided to blackmail my friend. 
And though my friend was included in her father's will, her mom was completely left out of it. And so my friend is left to care for her mentally ill mother and inherits a broken home with a shady contractor. And, and my friend's half-siblings from her, father's first marriage, uh, from, from her father's first marriage don't like her and are withholding estate money, spending the estate money to fund their own home remodels. And so my friend is now in a legal battle with her half-siblings while working and barely scraping by trying to support her mom while getting scammed by the contractor repairing her father's home. I mean, it's amazing to me that she's still a Christian. My friend would readily admit that she's not perfect, that she too sins, but the amount of her sins just don't seem proportional to the pain that she has experienced. And this isn't just my friend, but I think all of us. We've all experienced suffering that doesn't seem proportional to our sins. And this is what the book of Job and our first verse, five verses represent, presents us with. It presents us with a universal problem by presenting us with a person named Job. It is a human story. The problem that we come to see that we're presented with in the book of Job is looking for a connection and correlation between our suffering and our righteousness. It's the problem of living a godly life and yet still experiencing catastrophic pain and suffering. This is the problem that we encounter, and it's also a problem that Job encounters as well. But at the end of the day, all of our questions about undeserved pain and suffering lead back to God. In fact, the book of Job ultimately isn't about Job, his friends that we see later on, or even about us. The, the commentator, John Walton, insightfully points out that we may start, at, start out asking why me or why we deserve this, but ultimately, the question that we arrive at is, why did God allow this? Have you ever wondered that? Why did God allow this? Why does he do nothing about injustice? What kind of God are you? Who is this God? This is foundationally the reason why I want to turn our attention to the book of Job. It's because for all these subordinate things that the book of Job talks about, like grief, human suffering, loss, depression, the book of Job is about primarily wrestling with God. And there's something that God wants us to learn to be acquainted with, to be familiar with as we wrestle with him in the book of Job. And so in your notes, if you have it, if you don't, okay, I'll just recite it anyway. I don't know why I say this. The key idea is that the book of Job is a human story with two main objectives. The book of Job is a human story with two main objectives. There are many other objectives, but I've summarized it according to two. The first is that it shows us the universal experience of Job. The universal experience of Job. Take a look again at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now the first verse of Job already starts out different. Job isn't a Hebrew name, and that makes sense because he isn't from the land of Israel, but from the land of Uz. And so we have no idea where the land of Uz is. Commentators have had difficulty tying Uz to any, some, any sort of geographical location. Some have even thought that it was a mythical location. Some commentators have thought that uh, Uz was maybe perhaps located in Edom, which is now situated between modern Israel and Jordan. But even then, they aren't, they aren't sure, sure. Job is only mentioned twice in the entire Bible, only one in Ezekiel and the other time in the letter of James in the New Testament. 
but they have no direct relationship with Job. So these two honorable mentions do not place Job in any timeline at all. And so the clues that we have about Job is where he's not from and when he didn't live. And as we look on in this passage, with the lack of a sacrificial system, with how the animals are numbered and other clues in this passage, it indicates that Job took place either during the time of the patriarchs, during the time of Abraham, or even perhaps before that as well. And so the first line already somewhat suggests that Job took place in primeval history, ancient history. But as much as Job was probably a historical figure, Job is also a transcendent one. We can relate with Job because he was not an Israelite, much less a Hebrew. He is someone who stands outside the chosen covenant people of God, but somehow worships Yahweh, the Israel God, the one true God. And he is in a supposedly faraway place out in the east and yet is a true worshiper of God. What does that mean? It means that Job represents, in many ways, all of us. Job's lack of location and his lack of ethnicity reminds us that a true relationship with God is not restricted to the household of faith. The theologian Walter Moberly writes that the dynamics of Job's story are not dependent upon the particularities of Yahweh's dealings with Israel, but represent what is true or possible for the human condition itself. You guys catch that? The human condition itself. In other words, Job has universal applicability because Job as a transcendent figure represents every human being who suffers. That Job's history is shrouded with ambiguity and mystery demonstrates the ingenuity of his character and his universal applicability. You know, I used to think that Job was an exceptional kind of guy. And in a way, he was. He was incredibly pious and exceptionally righteous. In fact, as we've seen in verse 1, the initial depiction of Job, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning from evil, is the most glowing and positive character description of any person in the entire Bible. Moberly writes again that to fear God is the prime phrase that the Old Testament uses to describe an, an appropriate human response to God. And again, just notice that. Not in an appropriate Israelite response, to God, but an appropriate human response to God. Job wasn't even a Hebrew, and yet he feared God. Job wasn't an exceptional man. He was really and simply an everyday man. He did what everyone should have been doing anyway. He feared and trusted God. And yet, he experienced what we find is that he experienced terrible suffering. And so if we are to begin anywhere in the book of Job, it has to be here. Job did not suffer because he was evil, but precisely because he was righteous. What the author is trying to show us in this depiction, in in his depiction of this everyday man, is that though it sometimes is, sometimes sin is not the only possible cause of suffering. In fact, sin cannot be the only cause of suffering. The purpose of the gleaming commendation of Job is to demonstrate that Job was through and through righteous. Job did not suffer because he was evil. And if we miss this point, then we will miss the entire point of Job. Job was righteous. 
And the author of Job is very careful to maintain the distinction. In fact, take a look again at verses 2 to 3. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, and five sorry, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. You don't have to know ancient culture to know that Job was incredibly well off, both in family and in wealth and possessions. It is not random that Job had seven sons and three daughters or 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels or 500 yoke of oxen or 500 female donkeys. Any Jewish reader, which is, I think none of us, would know that seven is a symbol for perfection while three is the symbol for completion. And there are plenty of examples of this, but if you Google it too much, you will just become a weirdo, so don't do that. But what's particularly special is that the grouping of these numbers all add up to 10. Do you guys notice that? Symbolizing completion. Seven plus three is 10, thank you. 7,000 plus 3,000 is 10,000. 500 plus 500 is 1,000. They're all different powers of 10. The point is that not only did Job have impeccable character, he also had literally everything. He was complete in family and in possessions. But before we get carried away with what Job has, notice what the author does not do. Okay, notice what the author does not do. We are told that Job is exceptionally pious and that he is exceptionally prosperous. Those two things are true. But what we are not told is the relationship between Job's piety and Job's prosperity. Do you guys catch that? The author makes no connection between those two things. We might be tempted to conclude that if we trust God, God will bless us, bless our lives with friends, health, good grades, a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. But the author here makes no connection or comment between these two things, Job's piety and his prosperity. In fact, there is no relationship between the two at all. What's the point? The point is that God blesses Job, not because Job is good morally, but because God is good. That's it. When God blesses you, when you experience blessing and goodness, when you get that internship, when you get the girl or the boy, when you get into that program or school, when you have incredibly kind friends, when good things fall on your life, it isn't tied to anything that you have inherently done, good or bad. Blessing isn't chalked up to human goodness, but simply and thankfully, divine goodness. God blesses simply because he is just good. In other words, what we can actually really emphatically say is that God likes Job. God likes Job. That's why Job fundamentally is prosperous with family and blessing. Not because of any inherent goodness or badness. And when you experience goodness in your life, no matter what form it takes, it's simply because God likes you. I mean, think of it, you don't have to list it out, but just think of it in your head. Think of every single good thing that you have experienced from the point of your birth till now. Every single good thing. That is simply because God likes you. I mean, maybe it's too basic of a question to ask, but do you believe that God likes you? During Faith Forum last week, some students had asked if God hates certain groups of people because of their sin or the particular struggles that characterize these groups of people. 
On the one hand, I'm glad you guys asked it, but on the other hand, the fact that some of you are even asking that question makes my heart break because you have heard and experienced such bad theology. God does not create people so that he can hate them. There is something seriously wrong with our thinking and our theology if we think that God hates the people that he creates. The whole reason why God created humanity was so that humanity would know and enjoy him. Not so that he would hate them. The scriptures don't say that God hated the world that he sent his son, but that it was on account of his love that God sent his son. So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life. God's goal and purpose for humanity is not death, but life with him. The silent ambiguity between Job's piety and prosperity is meant to show us that we cannot nor should not correlate our own blessing or even our own suffering with our own sin, our own righteousness, or our own life situation. God likes you simply because he likes you. Not because you are good enough or not. Not because you made the mark or not. God simply just does. And some of us, I think, need to hear that tonight. That God, of course, he loves you. We can say that. Of course, easy. But God likes you. The fact that you experience abundance, goodness, even now, means that God likes you. That God rewards good behavior with blessing and punishes bad behavior, behavior with suffering is what's known as retributive theology. And it's precisely this theology that the book of Job seeks to critique and dismantle as being an incomplete answer to the problem of suffering and pain that we experience today. This isn't to say that God doesn't discipline or that God doesn't grieve over our sin. As I've mentioned before, we must believe deeply in a God of vengeance and justice. God's justice is the only reason why I am not insane over the current injustices of our world. It's because I know that in God's time and way, God will put all things to right. God's justice is good. But at the same time, what the book of Job is very clear on is that God isn't out to get people as if he's some kind of sin police. For some of us, we just feel like God has a hammer ready to whack us at any moment. In fact, I got a little superstitious because of, uh, got a little superstitious preparing for not just this message, but for this series, because one of my initial hesitations for going through the book of Job was that maybe God was going to Job me during our series. Because if the reason why Job experiences suffering is as a result of a divine wager that God makes with Satan, what prevents God from making a wager with Satan with my life or with your life? And thankfully, we don't have to live in that fear that God will one day put us through the ringer to make a point, because that's not the point of Job. God's interaction with Job is not what characterizes normally human life. The point is that our blessings or our sufferings cannot be directly tied to what we do or don't do. And Job's life demonstrates that again. Job, again, was not sinless later on, as Job's story unfolds. He will not curse God, but he will at points throughout our series question him and he will in frustration hold his integrity a little too tightly 
Job will have some significant trouble and we will have front row seats to see Job's uglier side later on. But I must emphasize again and again here, and as the author emphasizes again and again, Job was blameless. Job was blameless. There is nothing in Job that provoked suffering to take place in his life. The accusations that we will hear for 40 chapters will mainly be from his dumb, dumb friends, scrutinizing every minutia of his life, all the unseen nooks and crannies that apparently they see that Job cannot see, and they will say it's because of this or that that suffering has fallen upon you. But the lesson of Job and his conversation with his three friends is that you can know all the right things and apply it all wrong. And really speaking of Lighthouse Community Church that actually knows a lot of right things, but very possibly applies it all wrong. Job's friends are the wisest sages of their time, but they are revealed to be people who have spoken poorly of God. To know some right things isn't good enough, nor does it mean that you are equipped to help. You can know all the right things, but still be a dum-dum. So part of the application here is an application of caution. We must be very cautious in tracing our circumstances with our character in our own lives and in the lives of others. We might have clues on why we suffer, but those clues also cannot be proven. So it's better to not conclude at all. We must be very careful inferring something about a person's character based off of their circumstances. We must be very careful to suggest to others the reasons for their suffering and hardship. In fact, just don't do it. A significant category that we just don't have as Christians is the tension that God loves us and likes us, and yet we can still suffer. Like for, that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to go through the book of Job together is because we don't have that category in our minds. We just cannot believe that God can, at the one, on the one hand, like us and love us, and yet at the same time, allow us to suffer. And what Job allows us to see is that both are not mutually exclusive. They both exist in a mystery. We perceive what God is like according to our circumstances. And the book of Job cautions and warns us against making this kind of correlation. What the life of Job and Jesus even will show us is that it is possible to be loved by God, deeply loved by God, and to suffer. So the fact that someone is prospering doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. And the fact that someone is suffering doesn't necessarily mean that they're being disciplined. At the end of the day, we have no idea why people go through things. And so what, what do we do when we don't know? I mean, this might sound more basic and simple than it actually is, but may I simply just suggest to be patient, to cover your mouth, to be long-suffering, to stick with others. Don't leave them. Don't scrutinize them. Don't try to solve. Don't connect the dots for them. The path that Job will show us later on is to simply be there and to say nothing. Another application to point out is that the purpose of Job's gleaming resume is to demonstrate that Job's righteousness also didn't prevent nor protect him from suffering. 
Let me repeat that. The purpose of Job's gleaming resume is to demonstrate that Job's righteousness, on the other hand, also did not prevent nor protect him from suffering. Job's righteousness against the backdrop of his impending suffering in chapter two and later on in chapter one is meant to shatter the myth that our own righteousness can protect us from unjust suffering. That no matter what church we go to, no matter how educated we are, no matter what family we belong to, no matter how wealthy our families are, no matter where we live in Torrance, none of those things can shield us from unjust suffering because the thing is, is that suffering is indiscriminate. Suffering does not play favorites. I used to think that Job is given as an example to us so that no matter however much we suffer, we'll never suffer like Job. But that is not the lesson of Job. The lesson of Job is that human suffering is not phenomenal, but flattened. It is universal. It is ubiquitous. Just to show you how universal it is, my dad passed away from stage four colon cancer when I was 17 years old. My sisters at the time were 15 and 10. We were youth group aged kids. Some of you have struggled with unwanted sin all your life. Some of you have parents who divorced at a young age. The past year and a half was hard for most of us. We've experienced a lifetime's worth of hardship and pain compressed and condensed into a year and a half. The lesson of Job is not that we will never suffer like Job, but actually that Job's suffering is just like ours and our suffering is just like his. Listen to what the late Eugene Peterson says in his introduction to the book of Job. He says this, it is not only because Job suffered that he is important to us, it is because he suffered in the same ways that we suffer in the vital areas of family, personal health, mental health, material things. Bless you. All those things suffering can touch and they have touched in all of our lives in some way or another. The story of Job is the, sp- is the story of everyone here because we live in a fallen world. At various points of our lives, we will experience directly or indirectly poverty, grief. Some of us experience that now. Death, sickness, depression, loss, and even war. I mean, I was just reading the stuff about Afghanistan a month ago. I was like, I was heartbroken, broken. And all this happens not because of personal sin, but simply as a result of living in a fallen world. I think sometimes we forget that we live in a fallen world because we anesthetize and numb the true harshness of our fallen world. One of the criticisms that I have heard about the Bible over the years as a pastor is that it is unrelatable and foreign to ordinary life. Like many, I mean, What I've heard has been distilled into this one statement. I don't go through the things that people in the Bible did. But that statement itself is already more of an indictment on modern people than it is on ancient people. It's only because we have tamed our world and our circumstances to be less violent that the Bible seems so unfamiliar and strange. Cultural anthropologist Richard Schweder, not a Christian, 
professor from the University of Chicago, writes that the contemporary, official, secular way of explaining suffering is chance misfortune. That's the best way that secular non-Christians have devised of describing suffering. Chance misfortune. The sufferer is a victim under attack from natural forces devoid of any intentionality. So in other words, it's random. Suffering is decontextualized and separated from the narrative structure of human life. In other words, it is a blip on our radar. It is viewed as a kind of noise and accidental interference with the life drama drama of the sufferer. And the translation is that suffering is so compartmentalized from our everyday lives that it is best explained as random misfortune. As Americans, suffering has been so tame that it is regarded as a random misfortune, an interruption, a freak accident, an intrusion into our daily lives. And not to diminish it or demean it, but typically our suffering comes in the form of your grandma's poor cat who isn't sure whether it'll make another night And it's typically shared at the end of small groups because you literally have nothing else to ask for prayer for. For most of us, and I thank God for this, we live relatively safe and comfortable lives and we can count on our social media accounts to reflect that. But Paul Brand, who who still is a surgeon who was also a missionary and spent most of his life caring for lepers in India, and in his book, the gift of pain, he, re- he remarks that it's because the meaning of life in the United States is the singular pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom that suffering is so traumatic to Americans. One of the reasons why we have no idea how to love people who suffer and why we need to read books like Side by Side or Caring for One Another is because we have insulated our lives from, suffer- from suffering and sufferers. We, 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 we just don't have a language. We haven't cultivated a language or habits of care for the suffering or the traumatized. But what the book of Job reorients us, myself included, what it reorients us to see is that suffering is not an interruption in, the fallen li- in this fallen life, as if we can deal with it and move on, but something that will be here to stay and something to be endured like your parents' old piece of furniture. If you think about it, the slaughtering of plunder, uh, and plundering of Job's property, the sickness that afflicts Job's health, the bereavement that grieves Job's family, the boils and pus that cover Job's skin, the depression that darkens Job's mental state, the impoverishment that robs Job's bank account, all of these things that we witnessed just a few verses later are transcendent realities that we will experience not occasionally in a fallen life, and world, but continuous, continuously as we grow older. Job's sufferings only differ with our sufferings, only in degrees and not in kind. Job brings us down to earth, the real earth, a place that is touched still by human sin and fallenness. The book of Job wakes us up from our numbed, comfortable, anesthetized, and insulated pocket of reality. This book serves as a reminder that our world isn't actually like that. I mean, the pandemic still isn't over as much as we like to act like it is. I mean, mean, as far as I'm concerned, you guys are still wearing face masks. The point isn't to go hunting for suffering. 
But when it comes, the lesson of the book of Job is don't ignore it. Don't bottle it up. Don't pretend that it doesn't exist. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't compartmentalize it. Speak out to God. Cry out for him. What we are given in the example and everyday figure that is Job is how he endures it, cries out of it, wrestles furiously with God in the midst of it and is ultimately transformed through it. The book of Job gives us immeasurably more than a theology of suffering. I mean, we have plenty of books on that. I mean, I can just list off the books off of the counseling shelf. But what is unique about the book of Job is that it gives us the the theology of a sufferer. In it, we hear authoritative speech about God that comes from lips mingled with despair and anguish. And what we learn in the book of Job is that the person in pain, get this, is a theologian of unique authority. And so if you suffer and you cry out to God, you are a theologian with unique authority. The sufferer who keeps looking for God in the midst of pain, who has not abandoned God, has in the end privileged knowledge. The sufferer who has not abandoned God but complains to him, pleads with him, does not let God off the hook for a single moment, is at last admitted into a mystery. The theologian Ellen Davis writes that the sufferer passes through a door that only pain will open and is thus qualified to speak of God in a way that others whom we deem and call more fortunate cannot speak. And so what does the book of Job actually have to teach us about treating those who suffer? Is it sympathy? Is it compassion? I mean, those are typically what we tend to think when we hear someone's suffering story. But it's more than any of those things. What the book of Job actually teaches us is humility before the one who suffers. The book of Job instructs us more about respect than it does about compassion for the sufferer. Because if we listen carefully to the book of Job, then it will teach us to honor the sufferer as someone who can actually teach us. As someone who has crossed the threshold to speak of God in a way that others do not have the privilege that who do not have the privilege of speaking. This is how Job gives us the wisdom that we need to be better counselors and helpers to others. The book of Job actually gives us a language for speaking and ministering to those who hurt. It gives us an inside look of a sufferer with unique authority, and we can learn from him. Let us let us sit at his feet. And it's for this reason that the book of Job is 42 chapters long. How can it not be? The pastor, Christopher Ash, writes that when the suffering question and the where is God question and the what kind of God question are asked from the wheelchair, they can't be answered on a postcard or even a sermon series like the one that we're in right now. And this was part of my tendency, my hesitancy rather, in even doing a sermon series like the book of Job at all. It's because these deep personal questions aren't meant to be solved. It's a lifelong journey to travel. It is a mystery to be endured. Writing on therapy, the author Sarah, uh, I forgot her last name, writes 
Many will wonder why therapy can take so long. Why can't pain, once understood and engaged with, allow for a speedy rewrite of a physical or mental template and thus bring quick relief? It's frustrating. And she answers by saying that it takes two to four years for a language to become personal and a part of oneself. And therapy is like absorbing a new language. In therapy, the patient has to unlearn one way of being and develop another more sustainable one. And in a similar way, if you ask, what kind of God allows this kind of world that we live in? Why doesn't God just change me or my circumstances instantaneously? Does it surprise you that God gives you a 42-chapter book? That God does tells us that there is no instant answer to suffering. There never was. Like suffering, the, Job of, the book of Job cannot be distilled. It's mainly poetry with a very slow pace and explosive complaints all throughout. And it's because the reason, why for that, reason for that is because there's no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, and no message of Job in a nutshell. The book of Job must do its work in us and do it slowly. It's the reason why we provided journal Bibles for you in our series in the book of Job. Will you help me help you by walking through the book of Job with me, not just on Friday nights, but by walking through it throughout the week? Will you commit to that? To walk with God in the story of Job. To habituate to habituate yourself with its language, its theology, its anger, its pain, its torment, its crying out, its sufferer, and its God. Next week, Leighton will preach the, the following verses. Will you commit to reading that passage the whole week before next Friday, and the following week, and the following week? We will be most benefited by this sermon series, not by you listening to me talk for 50 minutes I mean, you're going to forget it anyway. But what will benefit you the most is when you work through the book. Christopher Ashe says again that Job is a fireball book. It is a staggeringly honest book. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think. Not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers. And it knows what we say in our tears. The book of Job is not merely an academic book. And if we listen to it carefully, he, he counsels. It will touch us. It will trouble us. It will unsettle us. And it will take us to the very presence of God. Okay, that was a very long point, And I'm uh, hitting 43 minutes. And I'm, the final point is, the first point is the universal experience of Job. Secondly, the universal mystery of Job. The universal mystery of Job. Take a look finally at verses four to five. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did Continually. The greatest mystery is that suffering would fall on a man 
who was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, consecrating and covering for the sins of his children when they party. I mean, Job does everything right. He trusts God. He fears God. He consecrates his children before God. The first five verses really do exist just to show us that Job really was the real deal. It doesn't say that Job was perfect, but it takes great lengths to show us that it was, he was simply faithful through and through. It was a very human story. And so when we look at Job's su- subsequent suffering, it just doesn't add up. It's almost easier to say that Job sinned, but because how could he suffer so horribly? And that's the easiest explanation. But as an honest book, Job recognizes too, the book of Job recognizes that life is not easy. Our lives are often filled with more questions and mystery than with answers and resolved questions. And this is what the book of Job does. It often leaves us with more questions than answers because we simply are not God. We just don't know. The book of Job does not give us neat five-step answers. I'm not even convinced that Job gives us any answer, actually. I mean, in fact, we don't even hear from God until the final four chapters of the book of Job. We have to slog through 38 chapters of wrestling and heartache and pain and complaining before God, before, before God even speaks. And we expect that after God does speak, everything will be resolved, right? But after God speaks, mystery still remains. God powerfully and sovereignly reveals himself to Job in a whirlwind, but God never tells Job the reason why he suffers. Job, Job doesn't know the story that he is in. He doesn't know what we know as the readers of this book. He doesn't know chapters one and two. He doesn't know that God has a wager with Satan. He didn't know that the cause of his suffering was due to God's confidence in Job's blamelessness. And he would never know in his earthly life. As the readers, we know so much more than the main character does just from the first chapter and a half of this story. And the question is, what does that mean for us? It means that when we suffer, when we experience heartache, when we experience betrayal, when we experience injustice like Job, we don't know chapters one and two. We don't know what's going on in the throne room. And so what do we do? Like Job, all we have, all we actually have is to trust God and believe that he will never fail us even when the circumstances scream the contrary. That though he slay us, though he terrify us, though he ruins us, though we don't understand him, we keep trusting him, we keep turning to him, we keep hoping in him, we keep crying out to him, we keep trusting and keep trusting whether we are blessed or not, whether we are happy or not, whether our answers have been resolved or not, whether life is easy or not. And we can trust We can trust him and we can trust even though at times that he will terrify us. Commentator David Kleins writes, by all means, let Job the patient in the first two chapters be your model so long as that is possible for you. But when composure fails, let the grief and anger of Job the impatient from chapters three to 31 direct itself and yourself toward God. For only in encounter with him will the tension of suffering be resolved. 
Job does not receive the answers that he seeks. And we don't always receive and get the answers that we seek. But in trusting, Job gets something far better than an answer or new understanding. In wrestling with and trusting God, Job gets God himself. That despite the suffering and the mystery, despite the powerless inability to control your own life, your own circumstances, or your own world, God is still holding, worth holding onto in a relationship of absolute dependence. Job will question God, as we will see later on in the book, but he never does abandon God. And, the, and there's a lesson too here for us in mystery. The, the, the tendency that many of us have when we experience minimal hardship and frustration is to just give up. It's too hard. I don't want to. It makes me uncomfortable. It requires too much work. But what we, but what we see in the tenacity of Job before his God is that suffering has literally stripped everything away from Job. Job has literally no one to turn to except God. And what Job's response to God in the midst of his sufferings and trials shows that truly worshiping God is not dependent on us feeling perfect or feeling well, feeling happy, feeling blessed. Job is blameless now, but again, he will show us his ugly side later on. The question isn't, can you worship God when everything is going right in your life? I mean, that's easy. Better question is, can you worship God when you are on the trash heap? When nothing in your life is going your way? When your friends ditch you? When you experience difficulty? When cancer comes back? When you lose your place on the team? When you lose your job? When you experience unwanted sin? When you can't get pregnant? When you feel anxious or afraid? When you've lost it all? When you have nothing left but God? Is he worth it? What the book of Job teaches us is so much more than how to suffer well, which by the way, I hate. I hate the phrase suffering well or lamenting well or doing X or Y well. The whole point of the Christian life isn't perfection. What we see in the life and response of Job is that it's messy. There is no well. That Job cries out to God at all is in itself a faithful response to God. In fact, that's exactly what the book Job is trying to teach us fundamentally. Is God worth it when life doesn't make sense? When God doesn't make sense? Is he enough? These are the better questions that the book of Job will train us to ask. And when we arrive at this point, when we, when we have come to the end of wisdom, which is actually the name of our sermon series, the end of wisdom is actually and ultimately what the book of Job is actually about. It's not about suffering, though it does talk a lot about it. It's not about the problem of evil, though it does talk a lot about it. It's about wisdom. More specifically, the end of wisdom. How? Well, first, the book of Job is the end of wisdom because it shows us that there is a limit to human wisdom and to what we know. There is only so far that human wisdom, your human wisdom, my human wisdom can go. Conventional wisdom says that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. But the story of Job undermines this wisdom because sometimes in the case of Job and in the case of Jesus, the most righteous human being who ever lived, we don't always reap what we sow. Sometimes we don't even know why we suffer. And it is only when we recognize the limits of human wisdom that we reach the true end of wisdom. 
When we've arrived at the limits of our wisdom, then we approach its goal. The limits of what we know and understand about our circumstances or our world isn't meant to make us clench even more tightly in control over our circumstances. The limits of human wisdom is meant to lead us toward divine wisdom. I, mean, I can't believe I'm using this as a, as a sermon illustration, but there's a scene in Dr. Strange where Dr. Strange is, is trying to revive and resuscitate the ancient one. Okay, I know, I know this is, I can't believe I'm using this illustration. And in the final, final moments of her life, as she looks out from the balcony, slowing down time in the speed of lightning bolt, cracking over the sky, she tells Dr. Strange that his fear of failure is what kept him from understanding the simplest, the simplest lesson of all. The lesson that it's not about him. It's not the same lesson, but it's a similar lesson. What we learn in the book of Job is that it's not about what we know. It's not about what we can do to control the terrifying aspects of our lives. We can't know. We can't do. That's, that's the point of Job. But God knows, and God can do. We can trust him even when he terrifies us. That's the TLDR summary that God teaches Job at the very end of the book. And in a sense, that is the answer to the problem of pain itself. We transcend human wisdom when we trust God, even when we don't understand what's going on, even when we don't understand why things are like this. But God is enough. And God knows, therefore we don't need to know. The end of wisdom is God himself. In the book of Job, we aren't given answers, but we get God. The very proof of this mystery lies in the incarnation and suffering of our Lord. Jesus was the most righteous human being who ever lived and experienced the worst suffering of all. Jesus, unlike Job, willingly stepped into our very human story. He entered a violent and suffering world caused by the destruction of sin. Job involuntarily experienced suffering, but Jesus voluntarily stepped into it. He became like us. He, he, was, he was tempted like us. He grieved like us. He was abandoned by God in order to be with us and in order to save us. The scriptures tell us that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, we will never encounter any grief or our own, our own or any others that Jesus has not carried himself. He himself has borne the sorrows of our soul and the crushes of our body. Jesus suffered for us. He was cursed for us. Jesus is the proof that God will never abandon us. And the scriptures are careful to mention through and through that Jesus did all of this without sin. In our pain, we just forget God. We ignore him, we reject him, we dismiss him, we turn somewhere else other than him. And this too, in his blameless life, Jesus comes to rescue us from. Job was blameless but not sinless. Jesus was blameless and sinless. Jesus is God's ultimate answer to the very problem of human pain and suffering. That has to be part of the equation. The story of Job is the story of us all. But the story of Jesus is the story that redeems us all. It is, in fact, a very human story. Let's pray.
Father, I don't know where our students are at. I, I, I'm sure many of them suffer in various degrees. But God, I pray that they would catch the lesson of the book of Job to simply see that you are enough, that you are worth holding on to, though you, in fact, do terrify us, though you do, in fact, terrorize us, though you, in fact, make our hearts weak. God, I pray that through this series, our students would be honest with you, that they would, in fact, have an authentic relationship with you, one that is not characterized by perfunctory praying or just reading their Bibles or doing Christian things, but that they would actually honestly cry out to you because that's what Jesus did. That's what Job did. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be, more importantly, people who, who are honest with you, who cry out to you, who hold you, who do not let you off the hook, to cling to you even when life doesn't really make sense. And so, Father, I pray that you would, um, even now, that the Spirit would be working in our students, that, that, that the Spirit would, in fact, work uh, despite the long-windedness of my, of my message. That the Spirit would, in fact, even now, um, help the students to apply in fresh ways the story of Job and appropriate, appropriate it into their lives. And so, Father, we ask for your help. We thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.